All right, well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We're going to be looking today, starting with verse 10 and going through verse 17. And as you're turning there, considering the text before the text that we're looking at today, specifically verse 9, um, considering verse 9, uh, Jesus says at the end of verse 9, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And what he's talking about there is judgment. He's been talking about repentance. So if, if they repent, wonderful, good, praise the Lord. But if not, there is judgment coming. Now these two sections that we have here, verse 9 going into verse 10 and following through verse 17 are likely not chronological. However, they are very purposeful. Luke is always purposeful. He has a purpose. Remember from the very beginning of the book, he's giving an orderly account so that we might have hope concerning the things that we've been taught. So it's very purposeful what he's doing here. So in verse 9 and preceding that, if genuine conversion does not result, judgment follows. If repentance doesn't happen, judgment follows. And then we get into verses 10 and following. In this section, we see that the religious leaders, instead of turning to the Lord in sorrow for their sins, instead of repenting, as Jesus is calling for, it reveals the hardening of their hearts. They resist him. They oppose him. They push away from him. They deny him. They resist repenting and turning to Jesus. And so let's look at the text together. If you'd stand with me as I read. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We glorify you. You are good and what you do is good and we trust you. We trust your word. Your word is truth, Lord. And so we praise you that we can come together as a people looking at your word and we don't want to waste this time. We don't want to gather in vain. We want to listen to you, Lord. We want to listen to what your word is saying. So I pray that you would speak through the words of scripture into our hearts. 
and that you change us, that you would grow us, that you would build us up, edify us, Lord, that you'd bring about repentance, that you would do the things that only you can do, Lord, and that we would stand in awe of your great name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. In verse 10, he was teaching, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now this is the last recorded instance of Jesus teaching in the synagogue. And Luke is emphasizing here that it's on the Sabbath. That's a key issue here. Most likely this takes place in the last couple of months of Jesus' earthly ministry. Not long before his crucifixion. Not long before his arrest. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So here's Jesus teaching. He's in the synagogue, a crowd gathered together. And in the midst of this crowd is a woman. And this woman, it tells us, is in bad shape. I try to imagine this. 18 years, it says. 18 years of her life. I don't know how old she is. But 18 years of her life, she has been crippled. Bent over, hunched over. She cannot straighten herself. 18 years. Imagine 18 years. This last August was 19 years that I've been in full-time ministry. This coming December is 20 years that my wife and I have been married. 18 years is a long time. It feels like a long time with, with marriage when you look back and it's, it's been joyful. We've had a wonderful marriage and you look back and it's just, boy, that's a long time. That seems like a long time ago that we were married. We were just little kids. We were just little children. We didn't know anything and we didn't know what we were getting into. And God's been so good. But that was a long, long time ago. Even when things are joyful, you look back and you think, man... 18 years is a long, long time. Try to imagine being this woman. 18 years. 18 years debilitating issue. 18 years that she's struggled with this. She couldn't straighten herself, it says. She couldn't stand up. Likely this condition would have been painful. It would have been terribly embarrassing she tries to walk through the city, people staring at her, children laughing at her, people thinking that she's committed some sin to deserve this. What has she done? Has she sinned or did her parents sin that she would be made this way? She would have been fatigued, exhausted, constantly stifled in life. Not only that, Jesus or Luke tells us that this is caused by a disabling spirit. That a spirit is doing this to her. Imagine the trouble, the difficulty. For 18 years she's tormented by this disabling spirit without relief. Was she married? Was she rejected by everyone? 
here she is in this pitiable condition in the midst of the synagogue as Jesus is teaching. In verse 12 and 13, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Now, this is a beautiful picture. It is the Sabbath. It is in the synagogue. Many people are there. Many people are watching. Here is this woman. We don't know if the woman came in as Jesus is teaching. We don't know if she's been there the whole time. It just says, behold, there's a woman there with this disabling spirit, hunched over, can't stand, troubled, sorrowful, wandering. And Jesus sees her. And notice in this, Jesus took the initiative. Jesus takes the initiative here. This is not a circumstance where someone comes to Jesus and says, please will you. Jesus sees her and Jesus takes the initiative. He sees this woman. He doesn't see her as a distraction or a nuisance. He doesn't see her as an obstacle to keeping the Sabbath. He sees an opportunity to demonstrate love, to love this woman, to show why he came to this earth, to heal, to save, to restore, to bring joy and life. Now picture this happening, whether she came in late or she'd been there all along. Jesus calls her to himself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. Calls this woman to himself, looks at her and says probably the most wonderful words she has ever heard in her entire life. Woman, you are free. Can you imagine the joy, being bound, being troubled, being depressed, being in pain, being ostracized, being rejected, and hearing this man, this one you've heard about, this one you hear now teaching the very words of God with authority, speaking to you, you are freed. Putting his hands on her, he miraculously heals her before the people. And she stands up straight. Eighteen years, she's not done that one time. What everyone else would just take for granted. Standing up straight. For the first time in 18 years, she experiences the joy of just standing with no pain. Jesus heals her. She's healed immediately and was, as with all of Jesus' healings, she's healed completely and permanently. You notice that, right? When Jesus heals, people don't come back later and say, hey, could I get another dose? Could I get more of what you gave me before? He heals completely. He cleanses completely. He washes completely. She's healed immediately. And now before all of the congregation, here she stands, complete, 
full of joy. And it says glorifying God. She was made straight and she glorified God. Now that's significant. There's no doubt in her mind where this healing has come from. There's no doubt in her mind why this happened or how this happened. Because God is good and God is gracious. She's not troubled. She's not confused like the religious leaders in chapter 11 who see God do a very similar thing. He casts out a demon. Jesus casts out a demon. And their response is, you did that by the power of Satan. Not this woman. She's healed and she knows instantly this is God. God did this. She glorifies him before them all. She's been delivered from her physical affliction. In verse 16, she's been delivered from Satan. Jesus has changed her life. And this is a joyous occasion. An occasion where you would think everyone would rejoice. Everyone would respond. Everyone would join with her, glorifying God. But that's not the case as we see. Verse 14, the the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now, what do we know about this ruler of the synagogue? As a ruler, he oversaw the operations in the synagogue. He was responsible for keeping order in the services. We can see from the text, he's a legalist who's more concerned with the details of rituals and regulations than he was suffering people and their deliverance. He's indignant, it tells us. Why is he indignant? The ruler of the synagogue, his response is he sees this woman freed from this infirmity and this being in bondage to this spirit is indignant. He's angry. Why is he angry? It could be partly because his authority has been bypassed. But certainly we see from the text he's upset because he believes that the Sabbath has been violated. Jesus has done something that is not lawful, he believes. We see that he's a hypocrite. Even before Jesus tells us in the text that he's a hypocrite, we see it. He turns and who does he speak to? He speaks to all the congregation. He speaks to all the people. Well, who's he upset with? He's upset with Jesus. But he hypocritically doesn't turn to Jesus to make his announcement to Jesus. He doesn't say to Jesus... You shouldn't be doing this on the Sabbath. He looks at all the people and says, there are six days when you should come to be healed. Come on those days, not on the Sabbath day. It's, that's hypocrisy. I've seen myself do this with my children so many times. Making an announcement to other people on their behalf. It's hypocrisy. It's not handling things the way that he should have handled them. This ruler misinterpreted the Sabbath command. He's correct. There are six days in which work ought to be done. But we ought to ask ourselves first, what work has Jesus done? He spoke. And he touched this woman and she was healed. What burden has he carried? Has he bore on this 
day. He's missing the heart of the law. Jesus is God. He didn't exert himself in any way. He loved. He loved his neighbor. He showed compassion on this woman and he healed her. The ruler misses the heart of this. Micah 6, 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? See, this man professed a love for the law but revealed that he had no love for his neighbor. You think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. As he begins, chapter 13 begins this way, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's the issue we see here with the ruler. He may have a deep knowledge. He may even have a expressed love, a professed love for the law, but he reveals he has no love. He doesn't love his neighbor. You and I might profess a love for the Bible. We might read it. We might read it a lot. But do we love Do we love our neighbor? Paul says, if I have not love, it doesn't matter what I know. If I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. You notice the difference between the response of this ruler and the response of Jesus. The ruler sees God at work. Sees this woman delivered. And he's uncaring. He would rather this woman remain in suffering and his rules obeyed. As Jesus will point out, he cared more about animals than he did this woman. He's critical of others. But look at the response of Jesus. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is loving. Jesus is sympathetic. Jesus is compassionate. His desire is to see this woman set free. And his work is to that end. Even in the midst of teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, he sees her and he calls her to himself. What a wonderful picture! In the midst of teaching, he calls this woman to himself to deliver her. That's a beautiful picture. It goes on in verses 15 and 16. Jesus 
responds to this man, but not just to him, to those who are like-minded with him. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You hypocrites. You fakes. Jesus is not just responding to the ruler. You and all who agree with you is what he's saying. You hypocrites. These people aren't upholding the law. They had a Christless, loveless, graceless, distorted interpretation of God's law that they clung to. Jesus reveals their hypocrisy. He reveals how inconsistent they are with their lives and with their teaching. To them, as Jesus points out, it's fine to untie their animal, to loose their animal and lead it to water. As long as the animal is not carrying a burden on the Sabbath, that's fine to do. Untie it, loose it, carry it to water, let it drink, carry it back, tie it up. But in that, they fail to see the obvious. If, if the needs of animals can be supplied on the Sabbath, if their animals can be freed, they can be loosed and led to life-giving water on the Sabbath, then how much more this daughter of Abraham who needs to be loosed and who needs to be led to a life-giving spring... How much more? It's hypocrisy. Is this woman of less importance than their donkey? Certainly not. Should Satan be permitted to keep this woman in bondage for one more day? That's what they were saying. That's what the ruler says, right? Come back tomorrow. Stay in bondage another day. Or two, or three, or whatever it takes. Whenever you're freed up to come back, if Jesus is still here, come then. Should Satan be permitted to keep her in bondage for one more day to keep their tradition? Why would one not seek to destroy the works of Satan on the Sabbath? Surely, surely they should, and that's what we see Jesus doing. Jesus has done it. He's done what is right Jesus in Matthew 7 verse 12 says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. Do to others what you would have them do to you. The ruler and the others missed this point. They missed the point of the law. They missed the heart of the law. And what's the result that we see in the text of what Jesus accomplishes here? Verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus' adversaries are silenced. What can they say? What can they, how can they respond? He puts them to shame. He silences them. 
all the people, all the others, all those who saw and are amazed and in awe and attributing this to the Lord, rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Him. All the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Him. Just beautiful response to the work of Jesus. Worship and praise. I want to think through this in light of what Jesus has just taught in the first part of 13 and in the end of 12. The call to repent. What is it that happens when a person repents of their sins? This story is what happens. This story of the woman is what takes place when when someone repents of their sins. I can't imagine, as I think through the circumstances of this woman's life, being in bondage for 18 years, and the things that she must have endured, I can't imagine the inexpressible, immediate joy of being able to stand up for the first time in 18 years. I can't comprehend what that would be like for her. You add to that the sense of relief. To be able to walk out of that synagogue knowing that no one will reject me today. No one's going to laugh. No more pain. Total freedom. You are no longer rejected. Jesus has come. He's making things right. He's setting things right. He's restoring what was broken. And He wants to do that for you. Just as He does it for this woman. He wants us to repent. That's what He's been teaching. And Luke is pointing to here. When someone repents, the Lord sets them free. Even though my mind can't comprehend physically what this woman must have experienced by physically being set free, those of us who are in Christ can relate to the story. What is the inexpressible joy that is experienced and the glorifying of God when Jesus comes into someone's life? He takes the initiative and calls them to himself and sets them free from what had kept them in bondage. If you know Christ, if you've repented from your sins, you understand that and you can relate to that. When someone repents, the Lord sets them free, free from bondage to sin, just as this woman is loosed and set free. So is the sinner who comes to Jesus and repents. You think about the reactions in this text. The ruler who responds indignantly with anger, rejecting this woman still, I think often people wrongly impose the ruler's reaction on the Lord. They assume God will respond to them the way the ruler responded to this woman. But that, that is so far from the truth. 
we see the response of Jesus. Jesus is not like this ruler. He truly cares. He won't reject you. He alone can set you free, and He will. He can, and He will. Those who come to Him, trusting Him, find the joy that this woman and many, many others have found only in Christ. Freed from their disability, what has kept them in bondage, their sin. If you're like this woman, still bound to sin, then I would encourage you, just as Jesus has been teaching prior to this, repent. Don't be like the ruler in the synagogue, resisting him and pushing him away and denying him. Receive him and repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. But for those of you who have experienced this kind of freedom that this woman has experienced, being set free from your sins, being set free from bondage, I want you to think about this story for a moment. Consider this woman for a moment. It would be wrong, in fact, it would be really weird if this woman left the synagogue and hunched back over to walk through the city. Because that's what people expect. That's what they know of me. That's what I was like. That's what that's what I'm used to. That's what I've all, I've done this for 18 years. You can't expect me to go back to my friends, to go back to the people I knew and and not look the way that I did. That'd be really weird. <laughs> It'd be really weird to see her glorifying God in the midst of the synagogue and then walking out and uh, hunching back over and acting as if she had never been set free. That would be bizarre and it'd be really wrong. And yet, how many people, how many people who have been delivered by Jesus saved, rescued, they've come to Jesus, they've repented of their sins, will gather together and worship Him and glorify Him and then walk out pretending like nothing is different with them. It's wrong for us to walk around still hunched over in sin and despair as if the Lord has not really set us free. As if his work in us is incomplete. Going back to what we knew, what we were used to, or what others expect of us. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1, You are holy and blameless before him. You are completely pure. You are holy. Therefore, chapter 4, start acting like it. Start becoming in practice. Start living as if Jesus really did change your life. That you really did die to your sins. That He did that. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Listen, if, if you are a Christian, if you're a brother or a sister in Christ, you know what it means to repent. You know what it is like to have Jesus call you out of the assembly, to identify you and call you to himself and set you free from your sins. You know what that's like. It's not right In fact, it's really weird that we would deny that truth and go into the world as if nothing had changed. As if nothing had happened inside of us. As if Jesus was not capable of making you fully alive and fully forgiven. The Lord equipped this woman in chapter 13 and fully intended for her to walk away restored and new. And he does the same for us today. He equips us. He enables us. And he expects us that we would walk in newness of life. Not pretending as if he had done nothing. Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes, beginning with verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Lord has set us free. And He has equipped us by the Spirit to obey Him, to walk in that freedom, to not go back to what things were like 
but to confess and to continue to repent and to walk in a new manner, knowing that the flesh has been crucified in Jesus Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. If you are a person who knows Jesus, walk in newness of life. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul says. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Just as it would be strange and weird for this woman to walk out and hunch back over. It's weird. It's strange. It's unbelief. For us to depart and go our separate ways and pretend like Jesus did nothing in our hearts. If you don't know him, if you've never experienced true repentance, true life that comes from Jesus, I would plead with you today, turn to Jesus. Turn to the one who came and made it possible for you to be set free, who came to make all things new, to restore all things, and did so through his own death and resurrection. Turn to him. If you'd like to pray with someone, there'll be a couple in the prayer room. Mark and Kristen Prince will be there. You can go straight out these doors into the prayer room. But just as Jesus took the initiative in Luke 13 to free this woman, he took the initiative to free us through his death. His body was broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Each week together we take the bread and the cup. Paul says that he's given us this sacrament, this blessing of participation in his sacrifice through the Lord's Supper. That's what he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What a joyful thing. That he sets us free and then invites us to fellowship, to participate with him in this way. It's why we are devoted to this as a body. That we partake together week in and week out. That we partake, we participate together in this way. We take the bread, we take the cup. Because we've been promised that we're participating with Jesus. We are fellowshipping with him. We are remembering his sacrifice for us. What a joy. What a joy. And so even as we hold the bread and we hold the cup, as we sing together, let's focus our hearts. Repentance is not something we do one time as if we pray a prayer in the past and it's all settled and done. Repentance is something we continue to do. As we choose the flesh over Christ and walking by the Spirit, we repent. We turn from our sin and and re-announce our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ for all that He's done for us. And so even as we hold the bread and the cup, you may want to consider in your hearts, are there things I need to repent of today? Knowing that Jesus has come to restore, He's made All things new. And if you are saved, if you are His, you are forgiven because of His death, because of His resurrection. You're justified. You're made right with Him.
Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for Jesus who has come and this small window in chapter 13 of Luke of seeing Jesus, your love for the broken. Bringing life, restoring the broken. Lord, those of us who know you, we know what this is like. We've tasted and we've seen. You are good. You set free. You make new. You forgive sins. You forgive sins. What a hopeful thought. What a hopeful truth. That in Christ we are set free. Father, we praise you and we thank you. And so as we hold the bread and we hold the cup and we ponder the truths of the gospel, Jesus, that you came and your body was broken and your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Even though you had never done anything wrong, you were treated as a transgressor on our behalf. We praise you and we thank you. We turn our hearts again to you. We rejoice in the truth of salvation. And Father, I want to pray for every single one of us here in this room. You know hearts, Lord. You knew the hearts of those in Luke 13. You knew those who were hypocrites and those who were faithful. Father, I beg you. Would you awaken... Right now, this morning, would you awaken? If there are any here who are living a life of hypocrisy, denying you in their hearts, would you bring true repentance and the joy of believing today? Would you save them? The God of this world has blinded their eyes so they can't see the light of the glory of you in the face of Jesus Christ. But you who said, let light shine out of darkness, have shown in our hearts and can shine in their hearts to give the light of the gospel of the glory of you in the face of Jesus. And we beg you to do that. That they would glorify you in faith, in believing in repentance, in salvation today, we pray because we want you to be glorified. We want you to be exalted. We know that we were made for that purpose. And we want all, all to say that you are king. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.